New from tvarchive.ca, it's Teleretro, celebrating all original Canadian television hits from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Original hits and original stars. It's Teleretro. Welcome to this month's Teleretro podcast. My name is Angie and I'll be your host since Patrick is busy watching the two-hour season finale of Intelligence. This month we have writer Paul Bellini of The Kids in the Hall, Jeff Lumby of Size Small and The Red Green Show, Derek Smith, producer of Do It For Yourself, and William Floyd fan Tom Waters joins us in speaking with Les Lye of You Can't Do That on Television and The William Floyd Show. But first, Patrick had the opportunity to speak to one of the mystery-solving teenagers of the Edison Twins, Andrew Saviston. He started by asking what the Edison Twins was about. I think what it was is, uh, it, to me, it was, um, you know, it was a show that uh, encouraged all these great positive aspects of uh, using your mind to solve things, using your smarts to solve things, um, uh, using found items to solve problems. It was all like it was a precursor to MacGyver. <laughs> I think it was, and I really that really hit home when, about five years after we wrapped the series, I wound up doing a guest star on MacGyver, and I just thought, my God, this is the Edison twin for primetime U.S. TV. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, there was always some bad guy who wasn't like a horrific bad guy it was children's tv and i think one of one of the great um hallmarks of the show was i think there was only one episode where there was a gun involved like okay. it usually it never it never put emphasis on that kind of a that kind of a bad guy it was uh somebody was polluting the environment or something and you know to that to those to that respect it was uh, it was ahead of its time too right when you when you think that you know environmental issues weren't on the forefront but i remember we had an episode of oh there was a factory that was dumping dumping effluent into the river and uh uh we had a few episodes like that and of course uh the character tom edison and the sister annie uh yeah usually solved these uh, mysteries, I guess you could say, using science. That's right, and, uh, and and often outsmarted by our brother Paul, who was always working his entrepreneurial angle. Of course. And, <laughs> and then, uh, but he, he, always, uh, he always had something kind of inadvertent to offer to uh, helping to solve the problem, which usually came into play, too. Now, I saw you, uh, I think it was on the newsroom, I think you had a guest spot on. I did, yeah, yeah. That was, but yeah, that was that was pretty. I guess that was about a year ago or two years ago. When okay, I did that. Yeah. Uh, that was probably the first time I, I'd seen you since your role in the Edison Twins, and I was shocked to see the blonde hair is no more. Yeah, the blonde curly hair is no more. <laughs> yeah, something happened. I was born with really straight hair. When I was sixteen, it suddenly went curly. I got cast in the Edison Twins at eighteen. Started it started uncurling sort of midway through the third season. And and the the hair department, you know, with TV and uh, uh, with television series, continuity is everything. You know, you you want things to maintain a look across the life of the series. Mm-hmm. So my hair started uncurling. I thought, what are we what are we going to do? So they first <laughs> like like they they said, well, should we permit? And thankfully, no one decided that they 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 we'd have to go that route. And they just kind of went with it, and then it straightened out. And actually, I wound up looking more like Annie <laughs> you know, towards the end of it. <laughs> So do you still uh, keep in touch with the rest of the cast from that show? Very much so. Yeah, okay. very much so. Um, uh, actually, you know what? Not so much with with uh, with Sonny, um, who played Paul. I'd love to know where he is, and I I, uh, 
I don't. I haven't. We we've we've completely lost touch. But with Marnie McPhail, who played Annie, and uh, with Mylon Chalov, who played Lance on a number of the uh, on a number of the shows, and Jesse Collins, who also played uh, one of our buddies. And can can you just give us an idea of what uh, what they're up to now? Yeah, Marnie is. Um, she's she's had a terrific career in Los Angeles. Um, doing all the television series down there and guest starring and uh, she's done movies of the week and um, uh, she's been very busy. She just recently got married and uh, got married in Ireland and, and Mylon Chalov has become a superstar TV director. Um, he lives in Los Angeles and he uh, directs 24 among other shows. So he's, uh, he's very, very busy and started directing about 10, 10 to 12 years ago. Okay. Um, up, up here in Canada, with shows like Street Legal, and um, uh, a bunch of stuff in Vancouver, the Chris Isaac show and things, and uh, it's now taken into L.A. and the big time. Good. And uh, you've been busy doing voice work and, and other things. Been, yeah, I've been very busy doing voice work. Actually, after the Edison Twins, I decided I would uh, I would take a couple of years off and write a musical, and so that couple of years turned into ten years. And the musical was a musical based on the love story of Napoleon and Josephine. And it, it played in Toronto, and then it took us to England for five years. Okay, five years. So yeah, it was five. It, it, the run wasn't five years. The run was about eight months. Okay. But the actual the, the producers wanted us over in, in the UK and uh, to be on hand for the director and the designing of the show and everything. So it was. Um, it was a really that was a, it was an exciting period, but I certainly had no no uh, idea it would take ten years. So so when that <laughs> ended, that ended in two thousand, and I uh, I came back to Canada, and uh, back to Toronto, and uh, I'd I'd always maintained even from England I'd maintained um, um, a presence in animation here in town, and that began with Nelvana, um, who produced the Edison Twins, and no the the Edison Twins was their first live action property. And what they were really famous for, and what they'd made their their uh, their reputation on, was um, was really quality animation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have really continued to do that. In fact, they sort of backed away from the live action. Um, they did uh, the Edison Twins. I think that was followed by T and T, and then the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Um, I don't think any of those shows had the life that the Edison Twins had. Only had six seasons and seventy nine episodes, and I. I don't think those ones ran that long. I could be wrong, but I, but I don't think they did. Whereas Nelvana's animation has just been a going concern for 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 ages, and they're, they're very successful. Right. And um and so I got into it through them, through um um a property they were doing with George Lucas, Droids and Ewoks, um back in the eighties, like the eighty, I think that was eighty four, eighty five, and uh and I've I've continued to do it ever since then. I think I just passed my 500th animation episode of animation recently. Oh, you're kidding! So, yeah. Well, first of all, like Edison Twins aired uh, all over the world, did it not? It did. Yeah, 132 countries, I think, is what it was. Okay. Did you still get uh, recognized on the street, or? Yeah, I do. I, it, it it surprises me because you know I don't I don't look the same. I mean, I, I really don't find I look the same. But people say they recognize my voice. So. That's what uh, going back to the newsroom episode. I, I can't remember if yeah. if the shot started with you off camera or if I was maybe reading while I was watching it. But I yeah I perked up because I heard the voice. <laughs> I think I even I think I had a beard in that. 
Okay, I, I, d- I don't. I think remember. I had a beard in the newsroom, so yeah, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been obvious. Um, but yeah, and I, I but I did get recognized. Uh, oh, several years ago, I was in Japan, and I got I got recognized in Japan, and that certainly wouldn't have been from The Voice because they would have dubbed it over <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, right. So um, you know, it, it always surprises me. I was in Halifax this summer, and uh, and someone recognized me. And, you know. It's lovely. It's lovely that so many people grew up watching that show. Yeah, and that, that's going back, you know, twenty years. So it is. Yeah, yeah. it's a long time now. Yeah. So, did you still uh, secretly uh, watch an episode or two? You know, I haven't seen an episode for so many years. I haven't. I would love to. Oh. <laughs> and I don't own it. I don't own any. I don't have any. I at one point I had them on. I had a few of them on VHS, and then they're they are somewhere in a storage locker and they got kind of shifted somewhere or to someone's basement when uh when I made this move to England in the mid 90s and uh I've never tracked them down again since so and I now have a 7 year old a little boy and I would I love him to see them so well Marnie and Mylan and I we keep on talking about oh we've got to call Nelvana and we've we've got to get this stuff transferred to DVD and just make sure we have it for our own kids and I'm hoping. I'm just. I'm holding out hope that someone again will uh, will air it because you know it's good. They've got these. Uh, there are TV stations on showing showing these sort of the classic, the vintage TV. And uh, I think it it was a great show then, and I think it would be. I bet it. I bet it would look dated. I bet our, you know, our our Ralph Lauren shirts and our <laughs> you know polo necks and things that are. Our, our '80s hair would be pretty funny, but <laughs> all the more reason to put it back on TV. <laughs> I hope they do because I know Danger Bay, which was produced at the same time. I think they Danger Bay started producing in our third season, and uh, I know that's on the air somewhere. Um, do you have any favorite episodes that stand out in your mind? Um, you know, I liked I I I don't I like them all. I like there there was one that we had that that uh, there was one that we went on location for that was really fun, and it was like location. It sounds like whoa, wow, it's exciting. We went to Guelph. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but it was an adventure. We were all in a hotel together and um, uh, shooting this two-part episode out in some caves. And I guess Guelph, at the, the, you know, offered the best location for that. So that was loads of fun. The, the, the really the greatest thing about doing the show was that the crew and the cast, by and large, remained the same, and uh, and the directing uh, the director staple re- remained the same virtually for the whole six years so it was like a family and uh you know we all we all knew everybody so well and uh going to work every day was such a pleasure um it was really really sad when i ended it was really hard to get used to the fact that it was over when we were when we were filming um we were down at uh the, the popular film location at the time was the lakeshore psychiatric institute fitting for this business <laughs> and uh, it was an abandoned psychiatric uh, institute where they shot police academy and they shot night heat as well at the same time so that was being shot in another building and we were and we were there and uh, um, oh there was another movie uh, Rob Lowe movie um, about skating oh young blood Young Blood, exactly. Young Blood, and uh, there, there, like there was a ton of a ton of films that were were being filmed at that time in the in that area, but it was great. I mean, we were we were aware that that in this in this funny old psychiatric institute down there, when Night Heat was filming and we were filming, 
I think at the time we were like we were the two series in production in Canada. I don't think there was I don't think there was a lot of other stuff. Certainly there would have been in Quebec, of course, with their own mm-hmm. market, but but um, in English Canada, and we were we were aware that we were a part of something and that it was special. You know, it's, it felt like uh, it felt like Canada's industry was was alive and hopping. And I mean, and the show certainly employed an awful lot of actors. Um, there was always a guest star. And, uh, yeah, and I was surprised that there were some pretty decent names that were oh, guest we, stars. We did. We had great. We had Kate Reed on there and Cedric Smith and no, some real um, Lois Maxwell, who played Mrs. Miss Moneypenny and recently passed away. Um, and I think she was in five or six of the James Bond movies. And you know, we, we yeah, we we did. We 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 came up. Uh, Got the opportunity to work with some incredibly, incredibly talented, generous, wonderful people. At that time, it was it was a great experience all around. Okay, well, I thank you for your time, Andrew. Okay, my pleasure, and thank you for doing this. It's it's great that you're doing that. I'm, gl- I'm glad someone is. Yeah. <laughs> you're a saint in the TV world. Yeah. <laughs> Keep in touch. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was Andrew Sabiston of the Edison Twins. Next up, Patrick talks to Paul Bellini, writer and cult character from The Kids in the Hall. Can you tell me first, then, how did you get started with uh, writing with The Kids in the Hall? I have to go way back. I I went to university with Scott Thompson. Okay. And uh, he was in a theater arts program, and I was in a film program. We were in the same residence. And we became friends, and... um, before long, you know, Scott was in demand by film students because he was the one actor that would do anything you asked him to. It was like, you know, could you stand in front of an oncoming vehicle? And he would do it, no problem. Can you fall down a flight of stairs? Like, he was like half stuntman, half actor. Um, when university ended, we, he and I started a rock band, an incredibly silly avant-garde punk rock band that uh, dealt mostly with improvised music and performance art. We were very, very weird. We were called Mouth Congress. And around the same time, he started to um, look for things to do outside, like in the acting community. One of the things that he discovered was called theater sports. And um, I think it was once a week at Harbor Front in Toronto, um, teams would improvise in front of a panel of three judges, and the judges, if they didn't like your improv, would throw big foam bricks. And um, so Scott formed a team with some other people, and they were working there. And I used to go down and watch. And, you know, we're talking 84, 83, 84. Okay. So the whole improv and theater sports thing is still relatively new. And, uh, you know, people are really getting into it, you know, how quick-witted they can be and stuff like that. So at Theater Sports, Scott basically, that's where he met Mark and Bruce, who were also doing some improv work, and he also met Kevin and Dave. Um, and the three different entities merged into the Kids in the Hall, which I think Mark pretty much had a hand in putting together. Mark kind of wanted to create a super troupe, so he picked, you know, he, Kevin and Dave were very strong. And they always joked that Scott was this annoying fag who wouldn't go away. So they eventually <laughs> just started to put him in skits because they couldn't get rid of him. And, um, you know, it, it started from there. Almost instantly, they began doing shows at the Rivoli, which is this little club in Toronto. 
I used to go to these shows, and I kind of knew, like I had this weird sense that this was going to be big. Maybe it was just my naivete, or maybe I actually know something. But um, I remember the first couple times I saw the kids in the hall, and I thought, God, they're going to be big. I don't know why I felt that. I, they were very unique, um, and they were bizarre and extremely funny. One thing I'll say about them is that they were extremely funny. I've seen a lot of comedy troops before and since, and um, they're the funniest. They simply knew how to work an audience. They knew how to uh, deliver a joke. So anyway, I used to go to all these shows. It was usually every second Monday night. And because I'm not an actor, I sort of had to find other things to do. So I would make myself handy. I would do the door. I would make the poster. I would film it uh, on videotape. You know, so I sort of always had this role as a kind of a sidekick to the troupe. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, cut to four years later, and they're offered a television show. And it wasn't the first time they had been offered a show. But it was the first good deal, and uh, it um, came from Lauren Michaels, who was basically back, you know, he had returned to Saturday Night Live, and Lauren Michaels was looking to rebuild his comedy empire, and one thing he wanted was some um, stuff he could put in syndication. And I think he knew instantly from looking at the kids in the hall that they were very productive, that they wrote a lot of skits, that the five of them competed with each other, um, and um, that it made them strong and that it made them very versatile. And it also uh, created this wealth of really a strong material. I mean, the, the early skits were, you know, many of the show's classics are, are from those early days, right? Mm -hmm. Like Salty Ham, and I don't know if you're familiar with all the skits. They're very familiar, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely, you know, things like um, Joymakers and Salty Ham and Ridge were all basically from the stage days. And it was obvious, I think, to people that this was something special. Or Michael, uh, what he did basically was um, brought them to New York and put them into a kind of a development thing where they had to do shows at Caroline's in New York and work on the script for a TV special for HBO. And uh, so they did that for a year, and then they came back to Canada and shot that special. And I know this is a very long-winded explanation, but, you know, <laughs> where's my involvement come in? Uh, after they shot the special, it was it was um, very well received on both the CBC and HBO. The New York Times uh, critic gave it a rave review, and before you know it, um, we were signed to do uh, the first season. Um, the boys really wanted to hire me, but there was they were writing their own material, and I'm not an actor. So, but the only thing they could do for me was hire me as an assistant because I was around all the time, I was familiar with their work, I knew what they were like, I was the ideal sort of assistant for them. Um, so my first year on the show, I actually wasn't a writer at all, I was a writer's assistant. Um, regardless, I started working on skits with Scott, and uh, some of those skits got made, and they sort of became my audition for the next year, which was being hired as a writer. So. I went from, you know, having really no actual practical experience as a television writer to working on one of the better shows in Canada. So I was lucky. Mm -hmm. Well, besides the, the writing, like uh, eventually you did make it uh, to the front of the camera. So how, how did that start? You know, a contest is a difficult thing. You kind of do it to gauge 
your viewership. I mean, we knew what our ratings were, and we got a lot of fan mail, but we really needed something to sort of put us in touch with our fans on that kind of level. So they decided to do a contest, and the whole thing was um, they wanted to do it different. They wanted to do a Kids in the Hall style. They wanted to not do a thing where somebody wins a flight to Toronto and comes to see a taping and maybe gets to meet the kids in the dinner situation. They were bored with that kind of thing. And somebody said, no, I think we should send the prize to the person instead of having them come here. And somebody said, well, what would be the prize? Like, do we send them a car or like an Amana range? What do we send? And Mark said, I think we should send them Bellini wearing a towel. And everyone blew up laughing and looked at me. And I knew at that minute that I was being offered something uh, very interesting. I was being offered a chance to be on the show, albeit in a humiliating fashion, like not wearing clothes. Um, what it is is, you know, I'm gay. I used to go to bathhouses when I was younger, and in a bathhouse you walk around in a towel. And I told Mark a story about me going to the bathhouse and the image of me wearing a towel and peeking into all these rooms, I think, left such an impression on him that he thought this would be a really funny thing. So essentially, Mark created the Bellini character. Okay. And later that afternoon, I'm standing in a public park wearing a towel, being photographed, and I'm thinking, wow, this is happening pretty <laughs> fast. Uh, and the first contest was, you know, you had to phone in and we pick a name and you get to touch Bellini, poke him with a stick or whatever. I can't remember what it was. Uh, so the first, the American winner was from Florida, which was great because it was winter. <laughs> the Canadian winner was from um, Perth Andover, New Brunswick. So when we went to shoot the Canadian segment, it was freezing and I'm walking around bare-chested in uh, like December um, in New Brunswick, and I'm thinking, oh, this is horrible. Why did I agree to do this? And, um, you know, um, when it came time to do the American one, the woman was from Florida, and I thought, oh, it's fantastic. So I got a trip to Florida. I thought, this is the life, right? Kids started popping me into skits here and there, like as a kind of a non-sequitur joke. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you got a crowd, and in the crowd there's Bellini standing there, and it's this sort of thing. So it kind of became like a kind of a little in-joke that are, I think a lot of our viewers really like. And, you know, I did that towel shtick for years, right up to brain candy, basically. And, in fact, I even did, I appeared in a few live shows to great effect, you know. It's one of those things that it's just weird enough for the Kids in the Hall universe, you know. Um, one time, Scott and I took a one-man show to Florida, and a fan came up to us and said, Oh, Bellini, I have you tattooed on my leg. <laughs> and he lifted his pant leg, and he had a tattoo of me on his leg. And I'm looking at it thinking, This is so weird. You know? Because I just think of me as me. I don't think of me as any kind of commodity or cult figure or anything. I mean, the towel guy is very specific to kids in the hall. It's not something that translated to other shows that didn't like I didn't do it on other TV shows or anything. It was never outside, like it never left that context. Um, it never made me rich or anything. You know what I mean? There was no yeah. spin-offs. It was just something that was very specific to the kids in the hall. So we, uh, our last taping was July 95. I got a writing gig on this hour's 22 minutes. And that necessitated me having to move to Halifax so all of a sudden, after a very comfortable six years working on kids, 
I basically had to pack my suitcase and go to a city I'd never been to. And I spent four happy years there working on about like five or six shows in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great period for me, like in terms of um, my career. To write television comedy, I have to admit, the first couple of years, you really don't know what you're doing. I mean, by the end of Kids in the Hall, I kind of knew all the tricks. I knew exactly what worked. Kids in the Hall was the best education. You cannot buy this kind of education. You can go to school for years and learn from all these, you know, talented, intelligent people, but nothing beats writing something and then watching people produce it. Mm-hmm. And I guess you had a lot of freedom there too, did you not? Like they pretty much just handed you the keys and, and you know, give us a show, right? The CBC didn't have that much creative control over the product, and they kind of didn't care because... Um, they had other shows, and I think they were a little scared of kids in the hall. You know, this is, we were on TV in the early 90s, and people didn't even swear back then. There was no reality TV. There was none of that crap, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't even a lot of cable. And, you know, we were doing all this edgy stuff, gay humor and stuff like that. And it was, um, you know, thank God we were on HBO, uh, and that allowed us, like, basically a 100% freedom of expression mm-hmm. because it's, you know giant pay cable in america um and the cbc to their credit they were basically willing to take the risk they rarely did we get censored it, usually if there was a flap it was over something involving jesus you know because of tender religious sensibilities right you still have that happening all the time um but um, they were they were a lot more open minded. I mean, you got to remember, Codco was on the air as well, which featured like uh, openly gay comedians as well. And they and they touched a lot on religion too. Well, Codco, you know, because they were produced in Halifax by Newfoundlanders, they got away with a lot. And I realized when I went to Halifax to twenty two minutes, that the big advantage is that you're so far away from corporate headquarters that no one really cares what you're doing. So you have an incredible amount of freedom. I mean, 22 Minutes was an anomaly of a show. Um, they kept it on the air because it was regional, because they needed to produce shows in Halifax. It became a hit because it was a good show, and also because the network didn't muck it up. I mean, they did change the time slot. 22 Minutes had about five or six different time slots in its first two years. It was ridiculous. It was on like literally every night of the week until they finally found a formula. And, and, you know, when I was there, that's when the numbers started to climb up to a million and then surpass a million viewers. And we realized, oh, my God, we're a giant hit. Kids in the Hall never got a million viewers. We stalled at around 700,000 generally. Okay. Uh, Kids in the Hall won awards, though. Lots of awards. Oh, so did 22. I mean, the thing with Kids in the Hall, we got Emmy nominations. I mean, what Canadian shows get Emmy nominations? Right. Not many, you know? I'm not to brag, but I mean, we had a great international profile. And um, so, you know, CBC kind of kept their hands off it. And Lauren Michaels had very little creative involvement. Um, you know, we kind of trusted, uh, our, our director was John Blanchard, and I think everyone trusted John Blanchard to, to do the right thing and, and make the product work, and he did. He was like, I think, you know, he was the real sixth kid in the hall. 
um, and kind of a genius in terms of what he did for our show. I mean, he did great work on many uh, comedy shows. He he did the first season of Codco, which is brilliant. And then, you know, after that, he went to the States and did a bunch of things like House of Buggin and um, Mad TV. You know, so the guy's a pro, but what he did on Kids in the Hall basically was keep it together and keep us working at the top of our game. Well, you know, uh, the the period of Kids in the Hall was a really interesting period in, in Canadian history, in television history, uh, because um, it was certainly uh, 10 years before reality television came and made CTV the giant player that it is. Mm-hmm. So back then, CBC really was the king, and uh, they had, you know, uh, Ivan Fasan had just started working there, and he, you know, his his concept was to bring in a lot of new shows and they, they tried making sitcoms like mosquito lake and material world uh just prior to us and they weren't very successful as shows unfortunately um whereas kids in the hall and, and codco in 22 minutes were exactly what the country needed at that point in time and um what's sad is that sketch comedy is now pretty much dead in this country uh where the only the only sketch comedy shows at all are like Air Farce and 22, and they're both pretty much on their last legs. I don't see anything replacing them. And it's too bad because this is a country that really is full of really strong sketch artists, and um, some of the most famous people that come from this country have been sketch comedians, and, and yet we don't have broadcasters who are willing to invest in the risk and the financial, um, um, you know, whatever is needed to make a show like that work. So maybe temporarily dead. I hope it comes back. That was Paul Bellini. Now a short chat with Jeff Lumby from Size Small and the Red Green Show. First of all, I want to talk about Size Small. Okay. Uh, How did that all start? Um, Well, that started in the early 80s. Uh, It actually, you know, the genesis goes back way further. My mom used to do... Uh, children's television in Saskatoon on CFQC in the 50s, where she had a live show. But then, you know, the the effects of bringing up a family, and uh, she spent, you know, the majority of the 60s and 70s bringing everyone up. And then as we were all kind of growing up, the idea came back into vogue, and um, my dad's uh, film company uh, was diversifying, so they opened uh, Size Small and began uh, with the TV shows. And actually... The show originated out of CKND in Winnipeg. And it went through a few transformations? Yeah. It, you know, it had uh, you had Size Small, then you had Size Small Island, and Size Small Country. They were just uh, basic theme uh, extensions from the original. Yeah. Okay. And the, the show was a family affair then? Yeah. Uh, who? Uh, yeah. You had siblings? Yeah, my sister played... Uh, my sister played uh, Grandma Gussie, and then a few uh, puppet voices. My brother was Oliver Sutton, and he was also uh, the guy in the friend record costume. And then he played a couple of uh, puppet voices, and and um, I, I played uh, Stampede and a whole bunch of puppet voices. <laughs> okay. okay. And how many episodes did you did you guys tape? I think it was by the time we were all done with it, it was it was into the hundreds. I I, I think I, I can't even remember, but uh, yeah, it was it was quite a few. And was that aired nationally? Or? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was aired. Uh, Global had it going for quite a while, but it was, uh, uh, you know, it was aired. Uh, yeah, it. Yeah, it, it was because sure, Global has uh, outlets in Vancouver and obviously out here, and and then um, 
CKND, and uh, and then there are a few private stations as well. And then it was also on a couple of PBS stations in the states. Okay. And uh, your other big role you had was with uh, on the Red Green Show. How did that yep. come about? Uh, that role came about when I was uh, back in radio at Y95 in Hamilton, and I was asked to participate in the Kitchener Oktoberfest parade as a parade float judge, and that's where I met Steve, Steve Smith, who is Red Green, and we just hit it off. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, kept in touch, and then he began to guest uh, appear on my radio show, and after a year or so of that, he came up to me and said, I'm looking for a uh, sewage and septic-sucking guy, and you're the first person I thought of. So. <laughs> that, that was nice. I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or not, but yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to give your, your radio show a plug? Or? Sure. The, you can uh, hear me every weekday morning from 5.30 to 9.15 on 107.5 Dave FM in uh, the Tri-Cities area, Kitchener-Cambridge-Waterloo. And uh, if you're not in that area, you can listen to the show on the web. We have a great live stream at DaveFM.com. Right on. Okay, thanks a lot for your time. Hey, Patrick. Cheers, man. That was Jeff Lumby from Size Small and the Red Green Show. Last episode, producer Derek Smith spoke to us about his hit show, Celebrity Cooks. This episode, he tells us about his other series, Do It For Yourself, which was the first handy woman show in Canada paving the way for the many female-hosted do-it-yourself shows out there today. Do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about that show? Well, it was the, it was the most real fix-it show that you, you would ever see because we built a, a 12-room house in a studio, 10,000-square-foot house, and everything worked. The plumbing worked, the electrical worked. So nothing was done kind of with cutaways. Nothing was done sort of with little demo models or anything else. Everything that was done on that show was done for real and done in real time. So if a something, for example, if a project took five minutes, the program, the, the, that segment took five minutes. If it took 25 minutes, that segment took 25 minutes. So everything was done for real. And we never stopped tape. So any mistakes that were on that show were left in as well. The theory being that people are going to make these kind of mistakes at home anyway. I know. I mean, I'm a fix-it person at home, and I know all the mistakes that I made. Now, I actually built a few of those into the show, but Mary on her own quite, quite often made quite common mistakes that everybody makes. And in her, in her instance, of course, they were very funny because she had a, just a great, a great comedic, comedic ability. Well, we were, we were, I mean, the only show that had been before us was Peter Whittall uh, called Mr. Fix-It that, that used to be, he used to have little segments on after the hockey game in the 50s on the CBC. We, we really started a trend, well, we started a trend of, of having women uh, uh, do these things because up until that point, no women had ever done a Fix-It show. And my thing, my, my reason for doing the show is essentially was, well, you know, of course women can do it just as easily as men can. And we proved mm-hmm. it. You know, not only, did, not only was she able to do all of these things, but we taught her how to do it the day before. I mean, she, we, we hired her as an actress so she could carry a television show. But we taught her the day before how to do all this stuff. So, I mean, if she could do, you know, sort of remember how to do it and actually do it on the air the next day, 
basically proves that anybody can do this. Right. It isn't rocket science, you know. I mean, she made a tremendous number of mistakes. And as I said, because of her abilities, they were very funny. <laughs> Any specific uh, goof-ups? That... Well, for example, I mean, we were showing how to put, how to repair drywall. And she's got a drywall screw gun in her hand. And I, my back was to the camera for some reason or another. And I all of a sudden saw all the cameramen. They were just doubled over, killing themselves laughing. And I couldn't figure out why, so I looked back. And I look back to the to, to what she was doing, and she's got the drywall screw gun, and she's it's up against the wall, and all of a sudden she realized the mistake. She hadn't even put a screw on it; <laughs> she just driven the screw gun right into the wall. <laughs> I, I read somewhere that in one of the shows, this set I guess posed as her house, right? That, that, yes, that's right. In one yeah. of the shows that she finds a VHS tape of her husband's Debbie Does Dallas under the couch. Did that actually happen? It was, yeah, yeah, the, yes. Well, it was her house, and I put it under there. And I changed the name. I, I, I changed the name, and it said Debbie Goes to Dallas. And, and I, I forget what she was doing, but she was just cleaning the front room, and she found it under there. And I said to her, I said, say, I wonder how that got there, and I wonder what it's about <laughs> It was just a throwaway line, and it was just a little bit of humor thrown in. Okay. That was aired in the U.S. as well? Yeah, it was. It was aired on three different networks in, in the States, Lifetime, uh, USA, and PBS. Although we did shoot uh, a, a separate 26-week group for, uh, specifically for a company called Anderson Windows. And uh, that was for the USA Network. And they were just slightly altered, but retained the same name and everything else. Okay. Um, we were asked to come down and do two episodes, two separate episodes of Oprah. And I actually went down to Chicago and I produced two segments of the Oprah Winfrey show okay. with Mary. And what year would that have been approximately? Oh, goodness. Uh, must have been about 86, something like that, maybe. So after the series' original run in Canada? Uh, that's right. Okay. Okay. I was surprised to see also that YTV reran this series in the 90s? Yes, they did. They did. Um, our distributor was a band of Rhodes, Jack Rhodes, and uh, he sold it to YTV for, uh, for, a, for a, a, I don't know even how many episodes ran, to be honest with you. I remember we, we, we did a, a, a show on on uh, how to how to basically you know sort of drill through the floor of your house to run some wiring down and so we got this drill with a long drill and she's drilling in the closet of course and uh very fortunately we had a, another camera in the basement and the drill came right down and right into a water pipe and burst the water pipe and she 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 had to go down to the basement for a for a tool so all of a sudden she runs down the stairs to the basement and it's raining <laughs> So very fortunately, there was an umbrella there and some boots. So she put on the umbrella and the boots and just sort of stood underneath the rain when we went to commercial and then we fixed it. So uh, anything that was uh, planned to go wrong that maybe she wasn't even aware that was going to go wrong? Was she ever set up to make a mistake? Yeah, she was, but I can't remember any specific incidents. Okay. No, I, I can remember more of the, the sort of things that actually 
you know, sort of did go wrong um, just as they did go wrong. But I can't remember any of the setups okay. at all. I remember one very frustrating time. Um, she was cho- showing how to change the oil in a car because we did some automotive stuff as well. And I said to her before, I said, you know, I said, if it gets on the, if it gets on the floor, I said, don't get your hair in it because then I would have to go through a hair and re- get her hair done again and everything else. Well, of course, the first thing she did was go under there, get her damn hair in the, in the thing. I had to have a three-hour break for the crew while I'm, you know, the money's ticking out the window while I'm getting her damn hair done again, you know, to do the next show. But the remarkable thing with that show was we actually one day taped five half hours in a regular eight-hour day. So, I mean, the, the rate of production was pretty, uh, you know, high. And uh, you didn't mention John Reeves yet. Well, John, yeah, John John was really a nice guy. He and his, he, his, his grandfather started a, a nursery called Reeves Nursery in Woodbridge, Ontario, which is north of Toronto. It's probably the biggest nursery in, in, in the Toronto area. And John, John really knew his stuff. I mean, he, he, was, he had graduated in whatever you graduate in to become you know, knowledgeable of plants. Um, so he knew his stuff. And John was the nicest guy, and he was extremely flexible. For example, there was no way we could really time the shows out. We never knew exactly how long a segment was going to run. Uh, you know, if you've been doing something, you never really can time it out. So John, the wonderful thing about John was I could go to John at the, you know, he was always the last segment and he was always at what I call a timing segment. So, I mean, I could go to John and say, okay, John, you've got 30 seconds to do something with plants or you've got 17 minutes and instantly he'd come up with something and make it really good. And it was wonderful. Okay, thanks a lot for talking to me. Yeah, gr- glad to help you, Patrick. And, uh, you know, I think what you're doing is really terrific. That was producer Derek Smith. <coughs> oh, boy. The kid's my worst enemy. Came in here today, the city health inspector. That's too bad, Barthy. Did you give him a burger from across the street to get him off your back? <laughs> no, I did not. I gave him a Barth burger to get him off my back. <laughs> I guess we won't be hearing from him anymore. <laughs> no, no, but we'll be tasting him for many weeks to come. Who do you think's in the burgers? I heard that. <laughs> oh, Barth! <laughs> and now Patrick is joined by Tom Waters to interview Ottawa legend Les Lye. Okay, Tom, I know Les Lye from You Can't Do That on Television with his uh, characters like Barth from Barth's Burgers and, and his other characters, but I've never watched uh, Willie and Floyd. I guess it never aired uh, where I grew up. Well, what can you tell us about that show? Okay, well, well Willie and Floyd was a very interesting show that uh, ran from around 1966 until, I'll say, 1985 or so. And uh, it went through a lot of changes in those time periods. It started off as a... Uh, a little wraparound show that uh, was used uh, to introduce cartoons, and it proved to be so popular, the characters of Willie and Floyd, that they got their own half-hour television show. Um, they had a talent agency at one point where they did vaudeville-type acts, and they did regular skits such as Dr. Dilly, Captain Aubrey Fatch, Hokey History, 
Um, they'd show films on a projector, and they'd have a lot of witty banter going on, have a lot of interesting guests that would do their acts on the show because they were supposed to be talent agents. So it'd be like they were auditioning the uh, the people who came on the show, famous or not famous. After that, they uh, went off the air for a while, came back, and they owned a uh, computer company and did some little strange things with a computer in a room. And uh, then they came back one last time after another hiatus and uh, owned a hotel chain, which I think in that uh, series, that was the largest set that was ever built for um, a Canadian show at the time, I think, or at least a Canadian kids show at the time. So, And that was the last series of Willie and Floyd. And it ran for quite a while, as you can tell from what I said before. And then it was in reruns on YTV and some other stations up until at least the early 90s. Oh, Les Lai, he's pretty much a legend in uh, Ontario entertainment. He started off, I think, at the Lauren Green School of Broadcasting and uh, went to radio and uh, television when it uh, started up. And he was quite successful in both mediums. He um, he did a lot of different types of kids shows, and I think he did some quiz shows and... and uh, all sorts of things, not just kids shows either, but uh, he also did a lot of local um, events around the Ottawa Valley, sometimes with Bill Luxton, sometimes not. So he's quite a local celebrity around there as well. Almost uh, best known, I would say, for You Can't Do That on Television, where he played all of the adult male characters on the show. And uh, he was also in Turkey Television after that, which was an offshoot of You Can't Do That on Television. And he was a film critic on CJOH, where he was a resident uh, staffer for a very long time. And uh, and uh, in the 90s, I guess he kind of semi-retired after that. But his career has spanned uh, a long uh, period of time. And he's also credited with uh, being one of the key factors in the um, success of Rich Little's career. Because Rich Little's first successful album was called My Fellow Canadians, and Les Lai um, helped him out tremendously with that album. And you're going to be interviewing Les Lai for me today? That's right. And are you nervous about that? This is your first interview, right? Yes, that's, <laughs> that's true. This is my first interview, so I am pretty nervous about this because, you know, he's um, he's a big figure, and uh, he's meant a lot to me over the years since I used to watch William Floyd when I was very small, and you can't do that on television, and it's a great opportunity to be able to uh, talk to him. Well, let's make the call. Okay. Hello? Hi, Les. Yes, yes. Hi, it's Patrick. You're in a mood to chat? Sure. Well, good. I got uh, Tom Waters on the phone with me. Uh, he's a self-proclaimed uh, largest Willie and Floyd fan ever <laughs> and so we wanted to talk to you uh, about William Floyd today sure Tom uh, you want to you want to take it from here okay this is uh, this is me Tom Waters here and Hi, Tom. Uh, it, it's so uh, it's such a pleasure to speak to you I hardly know what to say because I've been a big fan for such a long time um, so I well to it all later? began in 66. Uh, that's what I thought. Really yeah. Floyd, that is. That's right. Now, um, I'm very hazy on those early shows. 
so I was wondering if you could fill me in on uh, what format the show took uh, from 66 to about 76. Pardon me, yes. Um, when it began, the very beginning, we just sat in a little studio, Bill and I, as Willie and Floyd, and uh, introduced cartoons, and that wasn't very satisfactory. And so the next season, or possibly halfway through the first season, we uh, they found some old set that looked like a, I don't know, a, a barn, sort of. <laughs> and we moved in there, and that began uh, a series of um, changes. Uh, we... Uh, I guess the next set we had was um, a veranda of a farmhouse. Yeah, it, um, there was a window that looked into what was supposed to be a, a living room, I guess. But the show was done out on the porch. That lasted maybe one season. And um, I'm not sure. That, uh, I guess the next set was one that lasted for several years. And it was um, it was a set that they built for somebody else, and it was um, I guess it was supposed to be a a railroad uh, station office, oh. and uh, we made it into a, an office that we used, and then suppose it well there was a stage through a door in the office that, and the stage was. Um, well, it was it was kind of uh, oh, as if it were a place where they stored things, and uh, but there was supposedly an audience, and we used recorded applause and laughter, and, uh, and then um, I guess then the next move was to uh, the final series of shows we did, <clears throat> quite a number. Right. I think there were over a hundred in the hotel. Yeah. That yeah, was, that, that was the final series, right? The hotel series. That's right, and it was a really a half-hour sitcom, totally scripted. And um, the previous to that, we had lived our way, more or less, around, and we'd tell the director what the gag was that was coming up, and we'd uh, depend on him to uh, to make his uh, shots. Now I really love those um, those talent agency episodes. Willie and Floyd is just about my favorite television show ever, because it wasn't just for kids, especially the talent agency ones. It was because you put jokes in there that kids wouldn't get sometimes. You're right. Yeah. Well, we used to think about that and talk about it, but we right. agreed, Bill and I, that um, if they didn't get it, they'd they'd still stick with us and uh, appreciate some of the. Uh, slapstick humor and, uh, and, and and the number of the gags they would get. But you're right. Uh, I, I remember clearly meeting uh, on one of our personal appearances I met, or we met, um, uh, an older couple, grandmother and grandfather mm-hmm. types. And we said, uh, they said how much they enjoyed and they tuned in every week. And I said, oh, do you watch with your grandchildren? She said, no, we don't have any grandchildren. 
Oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> and I also find that when I was a kid, yeah, I, I'd understand the, uh, you know, the slapstick things you would do and things like that, and some of the more visual gigs, but I didn't get some of the, the verbal things that I get now. And it oh, sure. a whole meaning, yeah. I don't know where I stole the idea, probably from somebody <laughs> on TV. But Uncle Willie is, uh, we had a kid on who was studying her bodybuilding. Okay. And um, we had Uncle Willie toward the end of the show show how he had improved, and he we had these weights. Right. And he reaches down and goes to pull the weights up, and he stands up, and his arms stretch out to about eight feet. And that that was the kind of thing that we did. Uh, and we did some songs with, um, oh... Well, yeah, some of them were, uh, in fact, a number of them were uh, uh, pantomime. Right. Somebody else sang the song, and uh, we mouthed the lyrics. uh, Right, you do lip syncs of the songs. Yeah, uh, some of them worked out very well. We did uh, So Long, Who Long, How Long You're Gonna Be Gone. (laughs) <laughs> and so on. It was uh, Red Skelton and uh, Fred Astaire did the song. Right. I don't remember that and one. We, and uh, we did that one with Floyd parked on top of the piano and Bill playing. Right. Bill did play piano, uh, not much, but, but he had taken lessons. And so I, I, I never did, of course. One of my favorite memories was sunny side of the street and we did it um, supposedly in a very expensive uh, salon uh, uh, which was uh, chroma key it was a picture oh okay it was very realistic and i haven't seen that he was episode. he was singing it supposedly uh, well, no no he i'm sorry he did sing it he and did i uh, was playing piano yeah. supposedly Right, okay. And he blew the lyrics. Uh, <laughs> and he uh, started to laugh, and then the tears streamed down, and his mustache started to fall off. <laughs> and he, and he presses it back on, and uh, of course I'm laughing at the piano. And, uh, yeah. I don't know whether it ever, I guess we did play it sometime later as a blooper, as something that, uh, I guess it did get on the air. But... Uh, that was one of my favorites. What I'd like to do is ask you about some of the um, the characters that you use as regulars on the uh, show. And uh, oh, by all what, means, what was your maybe your inspiration behind some of them? Mm-hmm. So, okay, how about we'll start with uh, Morley the mailman was one of my favorites because uh, I actually wanted to be a mailman when I grew up because of him when I was very small. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. I like the, the non-depressed Morley the Mailman. <laughs> well, uh, although he didn't look at all like Morley, one of my favorite character actors from a long time ago was Victor Moore. Oh, I've heard of him. He, he was just kind of, uh, he, he almost cried when he talked. and right. He did some wonderful character work in movies. And uh, the one I remembered was a, a, a sketch that he did in a movie called um, Pay Him the Two Dollars. 
<laughs> he ended up going to jail because they wouldn't pay for the two dollar fine and whatever. Right. But, right. But that that was uh, the basis uh, of the character. There was, um, I think Manny was Manny was one of Bill Luxton's characters, and That's he right. seems to inspired Barf to me uh, to some extent. Yeah, there was a, a bit of uh, that because he was uh, he was a lousy restaurateur too. Right. But not quite as bad as Barf. No, that's true. Because he was really um, kind of, yeah, a swill cook, Barf. So. <laughs> Aubrey came out of radio. I used to do a character. Well, I used to do him <clears throat> on radio. Oh, yeah? you know, telling these fantastic stories that right. <laughs> always wound up with a, a punchline. Yeah. And they were hilarious, too. I really liked those. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of my wife's favorite characters. Bill played the doctor. Oh, Dr. Dilly, right. He was originally Dr. Dilly, and then we changed it to Dr. Dean Quay. Oh, right. I had forgotten Dr. about that. Dr. Dean Quay, and I called him Dr. Dinky. Yeah, that was great, like. yeah. Yeah. I shared the office with the doctor as uh, the veterinarian. And his oh, name was Dr. Raby of the uh, Kappas Casing Rabies. Right. I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. Now, that was, of... <clears throat> that was sort of a W.C. Fields character. You used to do um, Laurel and Hardy a lot, too. Yeah, we did, uh, uh, I guess we did a series in the same set. Okay, and there were other regular features on the show, like uh, I remember Around the World with Willie and Floyd. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing those. Because you'd have like used... a different location on a, I guess I guess it was a, just a, a picture or something, like a chroma key thing. That's right, yeah. And then you'd pretend was, you were there. Uh, fairly early days of chroma key. And, uh, oh, yeah. But they, they managed to get it pretty good. How about, you know, somebody I had a crush on when I was, you know, a little boy was Matilda LaFong. Who? Matilda LaFong. Oh, that, that's my daughter. Are you serious? And I made the mistake of, of not giving her credit on the show. My daughter, Emily, she's the youngest of the family. <laughs> she's that is 42 amazing. years old now. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you knew what happened to her. <laughs> I'll have to tell her that she had one fan out there. <laughs> she definitely did because I always thought she was very cute. Um, yeah, I, I liked her when I was around her age. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. I think she, she did um, I Love Onions by Susan Christie one time with uh, blonde pigtails. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> Willie and I had our knees in a pair of shoes. Right. So we looked like these ugly little fellas standing <laughs> on either side of her. And, and that's right. She mimed, uh, yeah, I love onions. I know um, Bruno Gerussi was on your show as a pizza delivery boy. Oh, yeah. He was taping another show, of course. Right. And <clears throat> I guess I was doing the warm-up. Bruno Gerussi cooking show. And I was doing the warm-up, so we got to know each other, and he'd seen Willie and Floyd. He said, yeah, i got to come down and do a guest shot on that show. 
I said, Bruno, we can't afford you. He said, I'm not going to get any money. I'll just do a little bit. <clears throat> so we we created him as a, a delivery boy for pizza. Right. And he comes and delivers the pizza, puts his hand out. I said, what does he want? Well, he said, he wants a tip. <laughs> okay. So I gave him a tip. Get a haircut. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So we and I think you came back after through the the pizza on yeah, yeah. your head or something, or Willie's head. I can't remember, but uh, well, he uh, he wasn't feeling that well. He shouldn't have even come in. He was coming down with the flu. Oh, really? I said, Bruno, you, I can't ask you to stay around to do the closing. I'll be here. And I said, I I know what we plan to do. And we'll do it, but somebody right. else will throw a great big wad of uh, pizza dough, huge, uh, yeah, through the door and hit Willie in the face or me or whatever. <laughs> right. So that's what we did. The studio director threw it, and nobody knew that it wasn't Bruno. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's, but that was a funny guest shot, though. I think it was very memorable for a lot of people, too. Um, oh, yeah, he was a nice guy, too. We also had Alanis Morissette. Oh, right, right. She uh, was on the kids' show, and then we got her to appear on uh, Willie and Floyd, and she was very good. I was really impressed about her acting. I was just trying to remember some of the guests. <clears throat> we had, many years ago... Well, of course, it's many years ago. Right. But, uh, we had, um, oh, gosh, the Canadian pitcher who ended up in the Hall of Fame, in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Ferguson Jenkins. That's All right. right. You had Rich Little on there, too. Yeah, Rich and I uh, were sort of a team when he first began. Right. He used to appear on my radio show, and we, we taped a... We uh, issued a, an LP, uh, my fellow Canadians, right. where he did Diefenbaker, Pearson, some of the other big names of the, that era, 40 or 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, we, we've we've remained good pals. I keep in touch with him. Um, okay, just before I go, I'd like to say... Um, it's been an incredible pleasure talking to you on the phone. I never dreamed that I'd be able to uh, to do this, and it's it's been incredible. It's just great talking to you. So well, I thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome, and the pleasure was mine, believe me. <laughs> thank you very much. Before I let you go, though, um, could I get you to give us uh, I Heard That? Just a minute. <laughs> that was really good. That was that was Bart. Thanks very much. Could you say hi to um, Emily for me as well? <laughs> yeah, I sure will. Okay, thank you very much, Les. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Les. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, Patrick. So you had the hots for Les's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's incredible because I never realized that she was his daughter. 
you know, all these years I've been under the misimpression that her name was Matilda LaFong. Right. Because so, that's the name that they used on the show. Right. And it's just incredible to me to learn that she was his daughter. So, um, yeah, she's a very nice girl. She was, yeah. Well, I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks a lot again for that, uh, the interview with Les Lye. No problem. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye, Patrick. That wraps up this episode of Teleretro. If you have any ideas for future podcasts you want to contribute, or if there is someone out there you'd like to hear from, email podcast at tvarchive.ca. As always, we look forward to your input. Be good. Stay well.